1: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns on your next order. Quince dot com slash style. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go on, they never go home. they never go home. they never go home. those, those, those boys.
2: That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Oh, you can laugh, I have to walk up. I'm a
0: little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want
3: to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. Well if you know if nice stay alive for six, right, six days. I'd go say it to your face. Base, not say it oh, to now. I'm, I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them with right, right? what you're doing down here, you show man.
0: <laughs> I had to feel a little sorry for Gary Neville and co-commentary yesterday on Sky. He couldn't have gone much harder in his old club, calling the second half capitulation embarrassing. He said United were a disgrace and so on. And yet by the time he moves from the commentary box back into studio, he must have realised he was only a bit player in another episode of the Roy Keane show. Nobody cared what Gary Neville had had to say. At one point, Dave Jones actually says to Neville, you know, Roy's view was they gave up out there. What do you think about that? And Neville's like, well, yeah, that's what I said in commentary, but uh. <laughs> does anyone listen to old Gary anymore? You're welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Pod. Hi, Ken. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Owen, how are you doing? Got a tweet in from World Service member GA, man. I've noticed a certain disregarding tone from you guys around Keane's punditry. Merited sometimes, but his overall consistent point on United is correct. Keane is right. Little genius. The least you should expect from pros is to be professional and at the very least run. It's by far the biggest issue at United, and Keane has said this for multiple seasons now. Scoff, if you will, due to his on-screen persona, but that doesn't make him wrong. No, I don't. I I enjoy Roy Keane's on-screen persona. My only, if, if there's a disregarding tone for me, GA man, it's only that I've been disappointed over the years with the lack of tactical insight from Keane. I thought I thought he'd be more insightful in terms of the X's and O's, as the Americans would say. Uh, so that's that side of his punditry has been a disappointment. But on the other hand, he does continue to, as you say, he's consistent in what he says and he continues to deliver big moments. This is probably my favourite from yesterday for just for the range of emotion in this clip. Check it out. This is... Uh, well, listen, I was going to tell you what I like about it. Why don't I
3: just play you the clip? Oh, look at Mac and Mac look and he seems an honest enough kid, don't get me wrong, but that's just... At this level, at this
1: level. What do you want him to do there? Tackle him! <laughs> 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 it's a trick question. You tackle him, you get up against
2: him, you take him out. Do whatever you can.
1: And that's what you wanted more of today? More aggression from Manchester United?
3: Yeah. But if they're going to give up like that, I not Again, that comes from within. That doesn't come from the manager, the staff, the supporters. That should be in your DNA when you're born.
0: <laughs> you see, I do like the range there. Was he? It's not all anger, guys. There's mm. more to it than that. There's also incredulity in there, exasperation, and also just the fact that he works himself right up. And then Dave Jones is with them, and Dave Jones says, "So you want more aggression from Man United?" And I'd say, they, I'd say the presenter at that stage is expecting more energy back from Keane, and Keane just immediately deflates and says, "Yeah." <laughs> but you know, DNA should yeah. be born with that.
2: Yeah, so enjoyable. Yes, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, Keen is by far the funniest of the pundits. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, and I, I just, well, is he by far? I mean, I'm, there's a few of them that are, that are that are kind of funny, but I think Keen is probably the funniest, both intentionally and unintentionally funny at different times. I mean, when he when he shouts, "Tackle him!" is is funny, <laughs> Tackle but him! also, you know. I guess is is that not the? I mean, his whole his his basic point yesterday was they gave up, but the reality is they were outclassed. Mm. You know, they were just they were just hammered. Like they were just. They couldn't cope with Man City.
1: It's a lot of fun to watch a guy emote afterwards, um, yeah. but the giving up wasn't the problem. It was the being completely outclassed was the actual problem. You know, they completely. gave up because yeah. But then you're
0: going you're, you're going down the road of analysing whether Roy Keane is correct or not. I mean, I've, I've stated before that's not really the point of Roy Keane's punditry. <laughs> whether he's correct? Yeah, he, well, we've he, moved on to he, the he game f- now. He will, he will feel he'll correct and he'll deliver his point in uh, provocative entertaining fashion mm. like he, he the criticized
2: mctominay for for failing to tackle the guy um whoever was it was who just sort of skipped past him and and that was in the build-up was it not to the fourth yeah. Goal, yeah yeah which is in what the 91st minute or something and man city finished the game with 753 passes do you think roy Keane ever played against a team that had 753 passes in a game
0: well, he never played against the Man City team that beat him. He was quick to point out.
2: Well, that's true. Um, but he never played against the Man City team that was any good either. So it would have been, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like literally, they were never any good. By the time he he retired in two thousand six, uh, and they were taken over by no Taction. disrespect,
0: no disrespect to Quinny and
2: yeah, Gary, Gary you know, Flitcroft on I mean, the likes. Can but continue. There was some. The, the Man City did have some some half decent teams. Um, you know with with david white and you know this guy, they kind of had a half decent team in sort of the mid 90s but like you know it was that was when manchester United were really good they they were uh, further ahead of city than city are ahead of them today which is a which is a big big distance huge yeah. huge uh so i I kind of feel as though sometimes keen doesn't necessarily take into account just how hopeless the situation is for mctominay you know <laughs> like you know there's this kind of oh they, ge- they gave up shame on them but like they're useless by-, by comparison there's no there's just no comparison
0: i think that's part of the problem though you know it's a cause and effect thing i suppose but you're saying that on the uh, that Keane isn't factoring in the fact that they d- didn't have the ball but he is part of his problem is that they weren't they didn't have anything about them to go and get the ball. And I think it was that Mm. Neville in particular was annoyed by that 92% stat that popped up. Last 15 minutes of (sighs) possession, 92% Man City. And you think, surely just by dint of hard work alone, Man United players could get the ball more than 10% of the time over a 15-minute period, but apparently not.
2: Well, I just thought, you know, even McTominay, uh, I thought his interview was interesting afterwards. I mean, he, he was just talking about how quickly Man City just spin the ball around at the back you know they they, they keep as they keep possession in their own half but like they they are absolutely whipping the ball to each other what at what point are you supposed to close this down you know what I mean like it's it can be done but but I mean who's who's really managed to do it well I mean even they even dominated possession at Anfield you know what I mean like it's uh, it's it's just a it's a pretty difficult problem and that you know Especially when you, I mean, when you give a goal away in the first five minutes, I, th- I thought the big problem with with Man United wasn't like that they gave up or, or they they lacked, you know, moral fiber. It was that they just their defending was just so incompetent that you don't have a chance against a team like Man City if you can't do basic blocks, like basic blocks. Alex Tellez, just, you know, he kind of looked at Kevin De Bruyne like the, the unmarked De Bruyne. Uh, you know, he he's just, I don't know what he thought he was doing. He's just sort of looking at him and then the ball is cut back. And it's, this actually was not like one of those Man City whipped passes that doesn't give you any time to react. This was a ball that like rolled in from, from Bernardo Silva. The kind of only ball he was ever going to try to play to the only player who could have received it until has only reacted as the ball is already on its way to the brain. Gets there too late. Maguire on the second goal. I know people are saying Lindelof stood there or Lindelof sort of put his head in and got, was beaten by Foden. Um, You know Foden flicked the ball over Lindelof. But Maguire Has the chance to put the ball out for a corner and let it go between his legs. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen? And obviously, what happened is the ball just like it just. It was just a moment of insanity.
0: No, that was crazy.
2: And and you know, I presume
0: he didn't want to score an own goal. That's the only thing I can think of, but.
2: But I mean, Still. you back yourself to, like the corner, All you need to do is knock it out for corner. There's a good margin for error
0: there. Yeah, there's about a hundred meters uh, margin for error along the, the end line.
2: There. <laughs> <Like> just, <laughs> uh, it's maybe he was worried that Foden was going to sort of nip in. But like, come on, you know what he what he ended up doing was just was was just suicidal. You know, you can't. And, and this was at a moment when United had sort of fought their way back into the game, scored a great goal, and. You know, City, with a lot of pressure on them, have a lot to lose in this game, have this recent record of losing this game in inexplicable circumstances to, to United. They're the ones who are under all the pressure at that point. And what do United do? Just absolute, like, mm. the, just the r- ridiculousness of that defending. I can't, like, and once once you do that, what's, then what happens in the, the so, so Maguire has now been nutmegged twice because the, because the De Bruyne goal went through his legs as well. Uh, you know when De Bruyne is shot. I mean, was, I think it was mainly Telles' fault. I mean, the, all the guys over who who failed to prevent block the original Yeah, you know that was that's worse. not great either. But like tellers I think needs to get that block. He he has time to do that. You know, he he should have been there. But Maguire then um, it lets it through his legs, and then the second one, obviously, he he seems to dummy it through his legs. You know, maybe he just was actually incapable of moving his foot in time to clear. That's that's possible as well. But that's not good either. You know, it, it looked to me as though, well, he can easily, he should definitely get that there. And if he's let it through him, it's it's a decision that he's taken, a wrong decision in a split second, rather than just an inability to move his legs fast enough to, you know, because that's just, so so. now he's he's led in two, there's two goals have gone through his legs on the way in. Uh, and now, uh, now when he goes out, to now I have to say, it's a great ball by Kevin De Bruyne to Mares, who applies a, a, a brilliant controlled finish you know he doesn't try and hit it too hard he just sort of controls it uh and it hits a first time shot uh into the corner um there's not really anything De hey can do about it but i'm again looking at mcguire you know, you should be you should be charging him down. You should be blocking this. But when you look at it, what's what's McGuire doing this time? He's 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 keeping his legs together. <sighs> it's like he doesn't. he, he's 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 been burned twice before. Now he's he's damned if he's going to make the same mistake again. So this time he's he's got a knock kneed sort of approach as he goes up towards Mara. It's not very quickly, and the ball hits the outside of his of his knee and goes in. You know. um... And and it's at that point that City then put together their fifteen um, minutes of ninety two percent. You know what I mean? It, it, it's at that point. But everybody knows the game is over. You can't you can't come back in a game like that when you when you make mistakes like that against a team that's this much better than you. Forget it. Go home, forget it.
0: Isn't Roy Keane the player who famously was was playing some match up in Dublin? Uh, was it a false match or something along these lines where his team in are four nil down? Fairview
2: Park, Owen, I believe, just around the corner from here. Was so. it in
0: Fairview Park? And yet he's still fighting, and it was one of the first times he was noticed by you know, by bigger clubs. Something along the... this is th- this is the point you're supposed to continue to fight, according to Neville and the Keane, and they felt that didn't happen. We'll get further into this. We've got Mark Richley on the show today. He was reporting on the Manchester Derby for the Independent. Then it's Champions League week. The Champions League knockouts during the week. Second legs Liverpool Inter and Real Madrid PSG and it's a huge week on the World Service because finally finally we're going back home
3: Hey Hey The game's all here Join in the fun Owen oh, keep doing your thing Triple B's behind you
2: and we love you dog Don't you wonder sometimes about sound and vision Eamon Dunby, everybody! Pleasure to be here. How the hell are you? My people. My people. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks a million. Thank you.
0: Million. I call it home, Murph. Liberty Hall. Wednesday you haven't started sleeping there yet, have you, Owen? <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I know oftentimes Tempted. you like to spend a lot
1: of time, you know, show week, just get the, get the sleeping bag out, sleep there for a couple of nights before, and just so you know the exact parameters, <laughs> you know, the exact measurements of the stage
0: upon which you're about to strut your stuff. Well, we have got six shows over the month, so maybe it's as easy just to just to hang out there the entire time. This first batch is going to happen from Wednesday to Friday. We're going to see a load of our beautiful World Service members for our gangs all here. Quarter of the way through the year shows, with thanks to <laughs> oh, O'Hara's Irish Craft Beers. I cannot wait. Some great stuff lined up for those in attendance, and we'll be podcasting some of the best bits for the rest of our members. So to sign up to the World Service for just five euro a month plus fat please go to secondcaptains.com and we cannot wait to see some of you over the next few nights it's going to be amazing report on sport please Kenny
2: we will talk a bit more about that game with Mark Krishah who, who points out in his piece it's worth recalling those moments the United's back four cost a combined £175 million you know like to me that that was the story of the game well there was the, the other story of the game was the guy who, who wasn't there Ronaldo and, and Cavani as well and this became an issue. Um, well, it was b- both before and after. I see the Atlantic uh, have reported that Ronaldo actually flew back to Portugal, raising some eyebrows at Man United. They felt maybe you know he might like to. To uh, he, it might have been good for him to show support to the team by going to the game, but apparently once his hip flexor uh, had flared up, uh, he he. Uh, I mean, the the story essentially was that you know Ronaldo had been told that this is not the, Atlant- the Atlantic story, rather, but the but the. Uh,
3: the, athletic uh, not the, the Atlantic. The talk. sorry
2: not the not the atlantic we'll get to the atlantic <laughs> we'll get we'll get to the atlantic but the, this is the atlantic uh they didn't say explicitly this but um you did see ronaldo's sister liking a tweet saying he's not injured he's fully fit it's just Rangex decided to drop him uh and that it was at this point that his his hip began to hurt and he evidently flew home to uh, portugal as well um yeah, rangnick was being asked about Cavani afterwards because Cavani had trained during the week but then I was like oh don't think I can play <laughs> and it's like what what are you talking about you can't play uh, and and rangnick after was like well what can I do you know I can't force a player to play you know if a player goes to the medical department and says I'm injured you know, what, am what am I I have to believe my medical department I have you know it's, it's that's you know I can't just say no you you're playing anyway uh, and it just struck me it was sort of interesting the way that he that it seems to work. Where what you really want is your doctor's telling the player, "I'm sorry, but you you can't play." I'm sorry, but we're gonna we have to stand you down. You know, but at Man United apparently it's the other way. You go, you you know, these guys are going to the medical department and saying, "Oh, I'm actually injured." And the, the doctor's like, "Oh, really? Oh, well, okay," uh, and um, and sort of not not appearing in the games. Um, anyway, uh, it's now looking. Um, now looking pretty ropey for Manchester United in terms of Champions League qualification because Especially they this are... Ar- this
0: remorseless Arsenal machine.
2: Well, this is the thing. I mean, the remorseless Arsenal machine has uh, climbed to one point ahead of them in the table with three, three games in hand uh, and having won their last four matches. I mean, Arsenal have basically put together the run the Tottenham have... Uh, have been inca- have proved themselves incapable of recently, but Tottenham also have three games in hand. They're only five games, five rather five points behind Manchester United. So there's still chance. There's still a chance for them of of um, passing them out. The point is that for United things are looking ropey. The good thing about that is that at least Ronaldo is surely going to be gone, uh, because he did give an interview recently where he said, "Well, I don't have that much longer to uh, to play. Maybe another four or five years, but I do want to win things." You know, so. <laughs> Like mm. he can can he afford to waste those those precious last four or five years of his career uh, in such a place? Um, uh, you mentioned Arsenal; and they did have a great win. Um, I mean, it, it, it the scoreline three two makes it look closer than it in fact was. Um, it was a game where I, I know, Kieran, you always like to keep a keep an eye on Ramsdale, and um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't think Ramsdale was great on the... I mean, the first Watford goal was amazing. It was, it was, you know, goal of the month. I mean, goal of the month this month was was a, a kind of quite average goal, I thought, by Sadio Mane. The interesting thing about the goal of the month, a six-goal compilation, was that most of the goals, I think four of them were against Norwich. So that's just <laughs> a... Um, an unremarked upon uh, aspect of mm. Norwich's plunge back to the Championship is that the, the, it's it's constant stream of goal of the month contenders flying into their net, uh, including two in two minutes. The Mane and Salah goals from that from their game against Liverpool both made the the six goal shortlist. Anyway, the uh, Watford goal yesterday, uh, the first Watford goal uh, by Kuchan uh, Hernandez, will probably win it for March, I imagine. Um, but the second by Sissoko was not a, a great goal, I thought, from from the point of view of Ramsdale. Maybe I've just watched too much Davide Haye, but I just kind of feel when when a when a shot beats a goalkeeper like this, who for some reason has decided to kind of uh, dive and try to catch the ball with like his stop the ball with his torso rather than doing the David Haye thing of putting out your foot and kicking it away. Um, I always wonder if maybe that was. If that was the best thing. Anyway, luckily for Ramsdale, Arsenal had uh, scored three goals by then. Great interplay between Odegaard and Saka. Uh, Saka then scored a, a actually quite phenomenal goal with a, just a, an early finish that didn't look on when you were watching it. It's like, I can't believe that he's kind of whipped it into the top of the net so fast. Uh, and then Martinelli scored another good goal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they look... I mean, it's too, it seems to say they're locked on, but they're looking. Yeah, good.
0: not far off though. Even if you look at it, uh, well, no, they definitely aren't locked locked in just yet. But three games in hand, a point ahead. Even if you're to give them one defeat, I'll give them two wins and a two wins and a defeat. You're still talking about a seven point lead there. Mm. Uh, With the same amount of games played, they're actually not a million miles off. Chelsea in third, they're five points off with the game in hand. So, considering where they were after three games this season, it's been a pretty, pretty decent shift by Mikel Arteta.
2: Yeah, well, Arteta. I mean, this is the thing, you know, from from struggle emerges triumph. I mean, Arteta himself was saying that uh, that Saka. Uh, the best thing that ever happened to Saka was missing that penalty i mean he didn't he didn't literally say that, but he did say that it was a good it was a good thing for him to miss the penalty in the euros final um because it was great for his career because the football world showed how much they like him and how much they respect him. I think that was a big boost for him to realize in difficult moments people are going to give him support and the club did exactly the same as his teammates, which is kind of amazing hmm. um when you think about what a massive moment that was uh you know what a uh I have to say at the time thought, oh my God, I can't believe that, that they have lost this final in this, in this way with that, that incredibly dramatic penalty shootout with, um, Sancho, Rashford and Saka all missing their penalties. I thought, oh my God. Um, and actually here we are, um, eight months later and, uh, Arteta is saying, well, that was good actually. I mean, he realized, he realized how much, how much respect people had for him.
1: Yeah, there might be some positives to take from it, but describing it as a good thing, I think, is is overstretching it slightly. It's
2: Too much. Too yeah,
1: much. it's it's way too much. But he is mm. a brilliant player. Um, yeah. there's no doubt about it. Like, and he is he is electric to watch. Genuinely, like, are there more? Are there many more fun players to watch in the Premier League than uh, Saka right now? Very few, I think.
2: No, uh, no, he's uh, he's doing he's doing phenomenally well, which is one of the reasons why it looks like they're going to um, get there ahead of uh, ahead of Arsenal. Of course, now what else was going on ahead of Man United? Yeah, ahead of ahead of Man United. Of course, they are Arsenal. Uh, and tonight, Tottenham were playing. You never
0: know, Arsenal have found many ways to throw things <laughs> up over the last few seasons They might somehow finish behind Being themselves. Being denied yeah. fourth
1: by Arsenal would be a very Arsenal thing to do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Chelsea um, obviously did the business beating Burnley, which was good news for Newcastle, who seem to have really pulled away from from trouble at this stage. They, are, uh, they seem like they're cruising uh, and no longer really in the relegation situation. Um, they're 14th. Which,
0: it's outrageous
2: they'll probably finish about.
0: up around mid-table at this
2: stage poor, poor old Everton uh, things are bad now, all of these clubs are uh, joined together by an incident at Eddie Howe's an incident, I mean a question it's not an incident really, it's just an, ex- it's an exchange uh, at Eddie Howe's press conference um, pre-match press conference this was uh, before their uh, match against Brighton this weekend which they obviously won by two goals to one uh, and this was the uh, BBC's Alistair Gill, who is uh, asking Eddie Howe some questions. So, we'll take it away, Alistair.
3: I wondered what you thought of uh, Russian ownership being moved out of Everton and Chelsea? Uh,
1: it's very difficult for me to comment on other football clubs. Uh, you ask me a question about this football club, I will I will answer, but I'm not going to get drawn into that.
3: Are you Are you concerned then that the authorities could look at Newcastle next? Because Saudi Arabia is also bombing a neighbour?
1: I'm not going to predict what, what people will do. I'll only react to clear facts that I have in front of me. So I think commenting on things like that is, is not relevant to me.
3: I mean, you are, you are the face of the club, though, aren't you? It's a Saudi-owned club, and Saudi Arabia is involved in a war in its neighbour, and Russia's involved with a war in its neighbour and being sanctioned for that so does that mean you know Saudi Arabia could be looked at as well which could affect you know whether you can buy players or
1: I'm a football manager And I'm coaching the team to try and get results. And that's what I'm going to comment on.
2: Uh, So that was Eddie Howe playing himself into trouble with his first uh, answer. Uh, Don't ask me about other clubs. Ask me about this club and I'll answer anything. And then probably Mm -hmm. not answering. Well, uh, I meant football related. Mm -hmm. I'm a football guy. I talk about football. Don't ask me about anything else. I I don't know anything else in the world. Uh, don't ask It's me. a funny one, isn't
0: it? Because it's, it's like, this has been, Tuchel has been in the middle of this in the last week as well. He was getting exasperated last week when he kept being asked about Abramovich and um, and Russia and all that stuff. Um, how, now, Tuchel seems to impress a lot of people over the weekend with his very swift condemnation of the, the uh, supporters. Chelsea who fans, fans the singing Bramford's for Abramovich. Name. Yeah, during the minutes of applause for... Uh, the victims in Ukraine. So um, yeah, he seemed to kind of turn that one on its head a little bit. I don't know. I don't know where do you stand on this? The idea that the managers are essentially the faces of these clubs who have these ownerships that we know about, and therefore should um, should
2: expect and should have to answer questions about that. I don't see why they shouldn't. Hmm. I certainly don't see why they shouldn't. I mean, this is what you know. I mean, Phil Phil Mickelson was, was able to be upfront with Jurvan. What was the guy's name?
1: Uh, Shipnik. Alan Shipnik.
2: Uh, <laughs> Phil Mickelson was, uh, was up front with that guy he says what was the they're scary motherfuckers to get involved with mm-hmm. you know what I mean off
0: the record according to Phil Now off the record according
2: whatever. to Phil but of course you know uh, it enables me to really shake up the PGA so you know um, and I, I don't know if, if Eddie Howe maybe just needs to adopt a, uh, a real politique approach to this um, because I mean the truthful uh, answer to Alistair Gill at that point would have been well Alistair uh, I appreciate the point you're making, uh, and I know that you've drawn an analogy there. And fair play to you between uh, one country being having a uh, at war with its neighbor and the other country also being at war in its neighbor. However, the crucial detail that you uh, have omitted to mention is that, uh, unlike Russia, which as we know is a hostile state uh, and, and against uh, the United Kingdom at this point, Saudi Arabia are our gallant allies. There are gallant allies in the in the Gulf. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be quite as concerned uh, as perhaps some of the managers at Russian-owned clubs would be about uh, whether this is going to hit my transfer budget. I mean, obviously, that would have been maybe too much, too much mm. truth. I
0: don't know. I, I think you should have a
2: job in the Newcastle press office. <laughs> this
0: is like, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely be watching the Eddie Howe press conferences if he was coming out with that stuff.
2: Our brave allies, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, are in slightly different situation. Um, I mean, there there had been, I don't know if you uh, noticed um, over the weekend, The Atlantic, and this is, you, I mentioned, uh, you, I, I, I said The Atlantic, I had The Atlantic on the brain earlier, but mm-hmm. this this actually is The Atlantic. The uh, American uh, magazine um, have, have published a big piece about Mohammed bin Salman, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who of course isn't, didn't directly own Newcastle United, of course. Uh, he is the, uh, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, which is say like the crown prince, the, he is the anointed successor to the King who is still alive, but, uh, pretty old. And so, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is, uh, as far as everyone seems to be concerned, pretty much the boss. Um, so the Atlantic, uh, journalist Graham Wood says, I've been traveling to Saudi Arabia over the past three years, trying to understand if the crown prince is a killer, a reformer or both. And if both, whether he can be one without the other. So, The piece, which is very long, is all about Vision 2030, which is um, uh, to convert Saudi Arabia from, allow me to be blunt, one of the world's weirdest countries into a place that could plausibly be called normal. So what kind of changes are they making? It is now open to visitors and investment and lets its citizens partake in ordinary acts of recreation and even certain vices. Crown Prince has legalized cinemas and concerts and invited notably raw hip-hop artists to perform. He has allowed women to drive and to dress as freely as they can in dens of sin like Dubai and Bahrain. He has curtailed the role of reactionary clergy and all but abolished the religious police. He has explored relations with Israel. He hasn't actually established relations with Israel, but I suppose that Saudi Arabia and Israel do have at least one thing in common, which is both are enemies of Iran. And uh, if you think about sometimes, you know, uh, sharing an enemy like that is something that can really bring two uh, countries together. Uh, uh, He has also created a climate of fear unprecedented in Saudi history. Okay, so a climate of fear unprecedented. Saudi Arabia has never been a free country, but even the most oppressive of MBS's predecessors, his uncle King Faisal, never presided over an atmosphere like that of the present day, when it is widely believed that you place yourself in danger if you criticize the ruler or pay even a mild compliment to his enemies. so it's kind of like right um so he goes to see uh MBS. He says, For our first meeting, MBS summoned us to a remote palace by the Red Sea, his family's COVID bunker. The protocols were multilayered, a succession of PCR tests by nurses from the Royal Clinics, a Gulf Stream jet in the middle of the night from Riyadh, a convoy from from a deserted airstrip, a surrender of electronic devices, a stopover at a mysterious guest house visible in satellite photos, but unmarked on Google Maps. He invited us to his palace at about 1.30 a.m., and we spoke for nearly two hours. So this is obviously the most exciting interview itinerary since Sean Penn uh, journeyed into the jungle to meet El Chapo uh, on the in the for the Rolling Stone interview that actually directly resulted in El Chapo's capture uh, by, by the police uh, by the feds. Uh, uh, but that you know, if you want to meet MBS, you got to jump through a few hoops. The Crown Prince left his tunic unbuttoned at the collar in a casual style now favoured by young Saudi men. And he gave relaxed, non-psychopathic answers to questions about his personal habits. He tries <laughs> wow. to limit his Twitter use. He eats breakfast every day with his kids. For fun, he watches TV, avoiding shows like House of Cards that remind him of work. Instead, he said, without apparent irony, he prefers to watch series that help him escape the reality of his job, such as Game of Thrones. So, um, you know, it's all about like can we can we ask him questions that might you know challenge him? And of course, he's different from every previous Saudi ruler. Um, so uh but when when he asked uh, when difficult questions caused the crown prince to move about jumpily his voice vibrating at a higher frequency every minute or two he performed a complex motor tick a quick backward tilt backward tilt of the head followed by a gulp like a pelican downing a fish which is a a striking Mm -hmm. image he complained that he had endured injustice and he evinced a level of victimhood and grandiosity unusual even by the standards of middle eastern rulers when we asked if he had ordered the killing of Khashoggi, he said it was obvious that he had not. It hurt me a lot, he said. It hurt me and it hurt Saudi Arabia from a feelings perspective. From a feelings perspective? I understand the anger, especially among journalists. I respect their feelings, but we also have feelings feelings here. Pain here. The Crown Prince has told two people close to him that the Khashoggi incident was the worst thing ever to happen to me because it could have ruined all my plans to reform the country. It was the worst thing to happen to Jamal Khashoggi as well. In our Riyadh interview, the Crown Prince said that his own rights had been violated in the Khashoggi affair. I feel that human rights law wasn't applied to me, he said. Article 11 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states that any person is innocent until proven guilty. Saudi Arabia had punished those responsible for the murder, he said, yet comparable atrocities, such as the bombing of wedding parties in Afghanistan and the torture of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, have gone unpunished. The Crown Prince defended himself in part by asserting that Khashoggi was not important enough to kill. I never read a Khashoggi article in my life, he said. To our astonishment, he added that if he were to send a kill squad, he'd choose a more valuable target and more competent assassins. If that's the way we did things, that's a, this is a quote, quote, if that's the way we did things, unquote, murdering authors of critical op-eds, mm. quote, Khashoggi would not even be among the top 1,000 people on the list. If you're going to go for another operation like that, for another person, it's got to be professional and it's got to be one of the top 1,000. Unquote. Apparently, he had a hypothetical hit list ready to go. Nevertheless, he maintained the Khashoggi killing was a huge mistake. Hopefully, he said, no more hit squads would be found. I'm trying to do my best. So, yeah, he uh, that's that's his defense on the Khashoggi thing. Uh, I didn't do this. Uh, this guy wasn't important enough to kill. And also, you know, if you're going to do something like that, you need to send professionals, not these bunglers. Is that the most we've heard him talk about that? No, because he's uh, about about that... Sh- assassination yeah, what about I, i'm yeah. not sure on uh to be honest i mean he has done a few of these interviews with like with prestige american media before and it's always kind of the same type of thing it's like meet the reforming king but does he have a dark side you know that yeah. so there's like on the one hand uh, women can have driver's license on the other hand um you know uh thousands have been thrown into dungeons you know what i mean mm. does this ty- does this type of and oh you know do, and then so then there's the section of uh and this is the part that i i, I imagine would interest Eddie Howe more. It's that uh, Joe Biden hasn't met Mohammed bin Salman. Um, the Americans refuse to treat him as Biden's counterpart. Biden's peer is the king, they insist, even though the crown prince rules the country with his father's blessing. This stings. MBS has lines open to the Chinese. Where is the potential in the world today? He said. It's in Saudi Arabia. And if you want to miss it, I believe other people in the East. We're going to be super happy. We asked whether Biden misunderstands something about him. Simply, I do not care, he replied, alienating the Saudi monarchy he suggested would harm Biden's position. It's up to him to think about the interests of America. He gave a shrug. Go for it. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, there's a, the article, as I said, is incredibly long. Uh, it goes into his whole, apparently, you know, his crackdown on, on sort of um, uh, the, the sort of clerical, um, class in Saudi Arabia, the religious p- police, the you know, the Wahhabists, and all this. But the thing about it is that it's and, and the article does sort of point out, um, that while a lot of Saudis are quite happy to see the power of the religious police reduced, because you know, ultimately, like, who wants to be kind of oh, you, I can see a bit of ankle, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, nobody nobody really wants this. Um, it's not as though. The repression in Saudi Arabia has disappeared. It's simply been assumed by a different power. You know what I mean? The sort of state secular power is now, uh, they're now the people who you need to, I mean, not that not that it was ever really different, but these are the people who you need to avoid criticizing or being caught on the wrong side of, um, as opposed to the uh, religious police. So it is, I mean, it's sort of interesting, um, uh, you know, not least when he goes to a prison and meets a bunch of former Al-Qaeda uh, prisoners who are now apparently uh, you know, at least in, in terms of what he was shown, they're now sort of being trained up as like kind of business entrepreneurs like video editors and stuff like this like they're all there, oh you know I used to believe in the caliphate but now you know I just want to like um, be a film editor and you're kind of like, <laughs> okay I mean, it's a it just it's just so strange (laughs) it's 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 very odd but this is apparently the at least what the saudis wanted this journalist to uh to see but yeah i mean it it does come i mean what what they're saying i mean it it, it sort of is concluding america must now decide whether that vision is worth encouraging Uh, 20 years ago if you told me in 2022 the future king of saudi arabia would be pursuing a relationship with israel treating women as full members of society punishing corruption even in his own family. I mean, punishing corruption is an interesting one because what he actually did was he rounded up hundreds of the richest and most important people in Saudi Arabia and imprisoned them in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel for weeks and months uh, uh, until they all basically agreed to give him some of their corrupt... I mean, some of them were like, I'm not corrupt, and those people, (laughs) I think, are mostly in jail now. But others were like, oh... I can't believe it, but it, it appears, unbeknownst to me, that pro- pro- probably uh, uh, due to the actions of underlings, I have unwittingly engaged in some corruption. Here is a check written to uh, the, the state to to settle and so that make to, you know to make things good again. So that that's kind of what everyone did. It was a, it was a sort of a, um, a crackdown, shakedown. Um, but the point uh, that the article concludes on is you know. Uh, punishing corruption even in his own family, staunching the flow of jihadists, diversifying and liberalizing his economy and society and encouraging the world to see his country and his country to see the world. And that is obviously, that's part of the reason why they now own a, a team in the Premier League. You know, Newcastle are, are they, it fits into this, this overall um, idea uh, that he's trying, you know, this Vision 2030 idea. I would have told you your time machine was malfunctioning and you had visited 2052 at the earliest Because I suppose things always sort of proceed, um, things always go a certain direction uh, the more time elapses, I I guess, is the assumption there. Now that MBS is in power, all of these things are happening, but the effect is not as pleasing as I had hoped. Um, Essentially that, uh, you know, oh, he's actually, he's kind of a bit of a tyrant, you know, and it's sort of a bit scary, like... um, But it is pointless to consider policy in a state of childlike fantasy, as if it were possible to conjure some new Saudi monarch by closing your eyes and wishing him into existence. Open your eyes and MBS will still be there. If he is not, then the man ruling in his place will not be an Arab Dalai Lama. He will be at best a member of the unsustainable Saudi old guard, and at worst one of the big beards of jihadism, now richer than Croesus and ready to fight. As MBS told me to justify the Ritz operation, it's sometimes a decision between bad and worse. So... Uh, yeah there you have it um, yeah. so although Eddie Howe has been asked uh, questions about uh, Russian ownership at uh, Chelsea and Everton um, this, uh, this article and the general sort of international picture if anything um, what's happening with Russia and the freeze that's currently happening with the relations between uh, Russia and the West uh, is an encouraging sign for the future cooperation of the great peoples of the United Kingdom and Saudi Arabia
1: Ronaldo. When I met Ronaldo, it was just a dream come true. And he said to me, "Are you okay?" Because I was obviously I was crying.
2: Happy tears. No, not for me. the girl who got Ronaldo's shirt. Was on the Late Late Show. Christmas is for kids. Which, by the way, I don't agree with. Oh, it's so annoying, though. These kids, why do they need to be on the pitch? The pitch is for the players, the team, and the supporters. Time of year we all turn into Come on. <laughs> Children who invade the pitch are are being invited onto the Late Late Show and showered with gifts. Nah, not for me. Mark Critchley
0: was reporting on the Manchester Derby for The Independent. Mark, hope you're keeping well.
2: I'm good, I'm good. How
0: are you? All good? Trying to work out how to ask about Man City here without getting straight into my Ma- <laughs> it, it occurs to me that uh, the story is so much about United that even my opening question here about Man City is basically a question about Manchester United. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out, as a lot of us were watching it, how good Manchester United, uh, Manchester City actually were yesterday and how good, I guess by extension, they needed to be to win that game at a canter. Because certainly Pep afterwards was all about this being one of the great performances in his time as as Man City manager. You've seen a lot of those performances was this up there for you
3: well i think um yeah i I don't first of all i don't think that it needed to be that good but i think that they were and uh, um speaking to a couple of people yesterday they were kind of saying how like these games perhaps don't always have the the aura around them that they used to you know you think back to when they were kind of both going for the title in 2012 or even like four or five years ago they used to it used to feel like there's a lot more riding on them and uh, even in, in terms of the build-up and the kind of coverage of it. And it, it, like you came out of yesterday feeling that, you know, that's that's probably pretty true, really. There's just not a lot about these, these this kind of contests anymore. Um, Pep was saying afterwards that, you know, yeah, the record against them in the past couple of years isn't great, but when they beat us before, we were already champions. And that's the kind of, I think that was a, a, a little insight into how, City almost mm-hmm. approach these games now because um, they don't see them as a, United as a particular fan. <laughs> I've realised we're falling into the trap of talking about United again. Now. But um, but yeah, no, I, I, look, in terms of like just total domination, it was a game that I thought that, you know, it, nothing, really, nothing really surprised us. We didn't really learn a lot, didn't teach us a lot. But it was still a, a significant result in the fact that it was the second derby of the year where... You just—it almost didn't feel like a football game at times, especially in that second half, where you have—you um, know—at the game, I didn't see it on Sky, but I saw Neville tweeting this morning a screenshot of the possession stats where it was like over a 15-minute period, he so had 92% possession. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not—it's—it's it's not football. It's not really this sport, is it? And it's all credit to everything that we know about City after all these years under Guardiola that they can that they can produce that kind of a performance in a game like this and against this standard of opponent. But then, you know, what standard of opponent are we talking about really? It's not it's not particularly competitive is it
0: it might not have taught us a lot but it did remind me of something certainly in in the first half and that is that jack Reedish is a pretty good footballer and there's a reason they mm-hmm. spent all that money on him was that as well as he's played do you think for city so far
3: um i think so i think it was interesting that he got selected because it's the kind of game you know he hasn't really always been in that first choice front three um but he got in ahead of sterling and um, it, 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 when I saw his name on the team sheet, you just kind of feel like this is the kind of game that he's going to relish and that he's going to, you know, uh, really step up to. And I think he did, um, you know, one of his better performances definitely. But then I, I, I don't know personally. I've never thought that he isn't playing that badly anyway. I don't know. <laughs> I know this isn't everyone's opinion on him, but well, two um, goals,
0: two assists. I mean, no, it has well, been great.
3: I think for that, you have to look back on... I did a piece about it around around Christmas when he was getting a bit of flack for a number of goals and assists. And, you know, he's admitted himself that he could be scoring more, he could be assisting more. And Guardiola said, gets asked about it quite a lot, and he says, it's coming, it's coming. But if you if you look back at him as a player over his career, I think, like, the most the most goals he's ever got in a season is 10 or something. I mean, it might even be in all competitions. Um even the assists, you know, we think of him as this kind of creative player. He's never really produced that many or set up that many chances or stuff. It, he's more like a, a guy who, you know, he's he, he's not a goal scorer or a goal creator. He's more of just an attack on his own. He's the guy that moves the ball at the pitch. He's the guy that plays the intricate little passes that, that, that sets things up. And, you know, and if you look at things like, I don't know, if you want to go into really advanced statistics, like carrying the ball into the penalty area or passes in the final third, all that kind of stuff. He's always like right at the top of those charts, right up with uh, Kevin De Bruyne. Um, so, you know, in, and and that's, you know, there's, there's a theory that that's the succession plan in there. So he's more that kind of player that links everything up and um, not he's never really been that goal or assist guy. And I think maybe... The way that people think about him and the way that we appreciate him as a player might have to start to change because I don't know if you'll ever really get there. But you know, performances like yesterday—you um, know—he comes out of that. He hasn't scored, but we're still coming away thinking about how how well he played. And I think that may be a kind of um, that's the kind of way that you need to think about really scoring. Yeah, football.
0: I know you. I know you want to come in here, Ken. I wanted to rebut you, Mark, with a, a flurry of statistics here, but then I had a quick oh, look, on, and you yeah, know, <laughs> uh, appearances in the Premier League, one hundred and fourteen over his entire career 17 goals. So yeah, that's an assists 18, which isn't absolutely isn't bad, but yeah, compared to the sort of goals no. and assist stats we see from the the top scorers and assisters, you've got a fair point there. He actually he hasn't been overly prolific even with Villa.
3: No, no. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Ken thinks about it, but it's even if you look in the championship, he was never this kind of guy that put loads of numbers on the boards. He was just the kind of guy that um you know, strung everything together and I think you can see that from the way the city playing it it almost it's it, that suits City. It suits the way that the kind of collegiate approach that they take to sharing the goals around and the assists around. Well,
2: it's just it's just the sort of role he has in the team is kind of, it seems so limited to me. It's like um there was a moment in the game yesterday when, when Martin Tyler started drooling about him and uh he said, Here's Greenish He's got that swagger about him that's perfect for a game of this profile. And what Greenish had literally done in this, uh, with, with to to earn this uh, voiceover from Tyler, was he got the ball, and, he, and in friends. He always looks great. Like his his shoulders back, sort of chest out. You know, beautiful balance, amazing amazing legs. He looks amazing. You know, controls the ball. You know, dribbles back along his own touchline towards the halfway line and passes it to Cancelo. That's literally what he had done. And, <laughs> you know, like, what is what is he talking about? Swagger? Like, I mean, he, he does have a... He is the most swagger I've ever seen on someone whose whose role in this side is so limited.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I, but I think that's that's true of, and it, he is. It is just kind of intoxicating the way he plays. I think, and I don't. There's a lot of people that that kind of. Buy into it. I mean, I remember when he signed um, Pep saying how he was he was Chiki Bagiristan's favourite player, and you know that that seems like it, it struck me as quite a kind of emotional rationale for behind the signing to for the record signing for hundred million pounds, the most expensive English player of all time. But. um but if even somebody like that, at a club like City, where there's all these processes, and we talk about all the scouting and all the, you know, everything that goes into building this team, and all the research and you know stats, whatever, if if the guy who's making the ultimate call can be swayed on the fact that he likes the, his swagger or whatever, and exactly that what you're talking about, then there has to be something to it, doesn't there? And yeah. um, like I say, he's, he, he is just a kind of intoxicating player to watch, and um, and I think once you get past the idea that he's supposed to do everything in this team, which he was never bought to do anyway, then maybe you'll start to become a little bit appreciated more for what he actually does.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I do think he's brilliant. You know, I think, I think he's amazing. I just think that he, he could be, he's got more potential than he's shown at city so far, but you know, there's there's plenty of time for him to do that. And it's not like the team isn't going really well. And, you know, he's soon going to have a a load of trophies to show for his move. So, you know, whatever. We don't mean to, to hammer Jack British. Anyway, Drawing a line under that, uh, let's turn to the enormous uh, whale-like carcass of uh, Manchester United and start picking into this um, decomposing matter. Uh, You know, there there was for the last few years when Solskjaer was the manager, there was this kind of idea that Manchester United had a cultural reset and that you know they were at last sort of building for the future. You know, that they were sort of putting to building in a serious way, as opposed to the sort of you know, ad hoc signings of the Van Gaal era—that was that was one thing that Ed Woodward criticised about. That you know, when Van Gaal was measured, they were sort of just grabbing players at random. You know, letting Van Gaal and his agent go. Oh, let's have him. Let's have him because they didn't have a plan. And then Mourinho came in. and He was like, buy me the most expensive players. And obviously, you know, buy me a bunch of Mina Rayola players. And it, d- it didn't work out either. And then under Salcher, there was a cultural uh, reset or, or reboot. Um, you know, there was there was serious planning in place. Uh, there was all this kind of stuff, and then you, you know you, we arrive at where we are now. I mean, I see our uh, colleague Jonathan Wilson's piece is uh, titled today: "Manchester United Flounder Without Foundations to Build Upon." So it's it's like we're kind of <laughs> there's nothing there. It's like what what have they been building for the last? What my question to you is: What is left of the Solshar? Era the 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 several years that the go to Soldier was enjoyed What is actually what was built during that era that you think is still there and is going to be taken forward into whatever the next sort of era of Manchester United is?
3: Um, that's a really good question. I think if you if you were going to try and approach it from in terms of signings, um, like I remember that first full summary we had where they brought in Harry Maguire and Wombi Saka and Dan James. And it was around the time when you, you're saying um, there's a lot of talk about the cultural reset and how much research and uh, how they revolutionized the scouting department, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, those three signings were kind of taken as evidence of, of this having already have worked. And then, you know, you look at where we are today and well, Dan James has obviously left. You, you have wan who I think most people now accept is never really going to be at the absolute top level is he, the limits to his game are far too great to ever to really build forward on that um and then you've got maguire who's become kind of this i don't know kind of like a, a bit of a culture war over him um but i think most people would even accept that you know whatever his strengths might be as a as a center half he's, he's been playing horribly for, well, if you talk if you talk <laughs> about a culture war center.
2: a culture war, like who's on the other side of the war I mean, this is pretty. This is pretty one-sided. Yeah, no,
3: you know, I agree. Yeah, but thinking that, I mean, there's 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 a lot of defences of Maguire out on on Twitter and things like that uh, that I've seen, and some some writers. And I think, look, I think as a as a centre half, he's still the guy that last season. I think outside of Manchester City players, he was probably one of the best centre backs in the league. I would say honestly, he he got in the team of the year at the Euros. Um, he's a he's a guy who's. In terms of in possession, he's got everything that you, I think you'd want from a centre-half. Um, he's aerially dominant. I think when Varane came in, in the summer, it was Varane and Maguire was the centre-half partnership. Everybody agreed. There was no question over whether he'd be dropping out of the team. Um, City wanted him. Pep was a fan of him <laughs> a couple of years ago. And the the kind of the, the downfall since then, and fall from grace, has been rather spectacular. Um and you know you only have to really watch the kind of blooper reel that's that's been put together this season from that from that game that game at Leicester that they had in October when he came back from injury, possibly a little too early. Everything since then has just been, you, you know, you, it's it's not even the amount of goals they concede; it's how they concede them, uh, and his his role in them. And you know, I think the concerning thing is that you'd say it's not the first time because there was a similar kind of slump that he had at the start of last season after the Mykonos incident. And you kind of think, well, how did he get out of that? Well, he basically played all the time. He played practically every minute that he could last season. And he was part of a Solskjaer team, and that team was kind of a team that didn't maybe play slightly more towards his strength. It wasn't quite as proactive defensively. You know, there wasn't as much space in behind for him, so maybe that helped. But then again, you know, this form that he's been in, it predates Raniuk's appointment, it predates this new kind of idea of pressing and everything like that so it's it's a difficult situation i mean um i think that if if he's the marquee signing the club captain from the sulkshire era and we've got this many questions about him this far in i think that says everything that you need to know about (laughs) <laughs> the remnants of the Solskjaer even what foundations United have left to build on which really at the minute don't look like much
2: I mean he's the captain at the moment but there, this has been uh, this is apparently an increasingly contested position within the club um, so you know there's been stories about a, a rivalry at Ronaldo over this um, which I think you know certainly Marcus Rashford got on Twitter to say stop looking for divisions or you know something like this um, but it, it, you know his 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 form. I I just wonder if this supposed rivalry, and you know, you hear that that maybe Ronaldo doesn't always treat McGuire with a huge amount of respect. That this might be playing on his mind a little bit, or contributing to the pressure he feels he's he's under here.
3: Well, I mean, I think that Ronaldo coming in, whatever whatever the story is, and you know, it's like I said when I came on the other week, like. If people are denying it, people are denying it, but I think <laughs> it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be normal for that that kind of thing not to be happening, given the situation at United. Um, I think with Ronaldo coming in, what was kind of perhaps underplayed a little bit was just how political a signing is. You know how you are you bringing in a guy who you know for all the goals, for all the uh, for all the nostalgia, for all that he means to the club, he is a guy who will be a, a leading figure within that dressing room from day one and you know i as, as describe him as a kind of political figure i think that becomes increasingly so with age and increasingly as his powers wane because he's you know as we see in anybody who's watched his recent performances he's a long way past his peak now but he's still got a kind of trade on that reputation he's still got a trade on that kind of experience um and it's dangerous to really introduce that to a dressing room and it's dangerous because you have this guy who's a 37 year old um, and he looks a 37 year old at the minute and but he's been told all his life that he's some kind of alien he's some kind of supernatural freak and, and he believes all that as well and that he can just keep playing forever then how much harder does it become to say kind of like sorry sorry christiana but we think we'd like to try uh, Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba up front in you know, a in a front two. This week. Yeah, well, apparently, it, it,
0: <laughs> it, you know, it depends who you listen to, but it, it's very hard to say that, and so hard for Ronaldo to accept that he uh, indeed was off in Portugal getting treatment for this injury rather than sitting on the bench. I mean, Roy Keane, you said you didn't obviously see, see the sky stuff. Roy Keane was quite sceptical about Ronaldo's injury, and he's saying now there's, there's, there must be something going on behind the scenes there. Ranić's like well I can't force a guy to play if he's injured what's your take on that is there more to it than just uh, a 37 year old being injured and missing the game
3: um, I think that like once it became clear yesterday that his he was going to be absent you know that the suggestion that there was a little more to it started going around you saw the keen thing I think his sisters liked a post on Instagram essentially to that effect as well and there was you know, also uh, the
2: fact that there was also two other things Mark there was there was Rangnick afterwards talking about the game in such a way as to almost offer a reason why he w- wouldn't have picked Ronaldo anyway like uh, talking about all yeah. the all the running they had to do all the negative running and we have to be in hunting mode and, and, and it was sort of like yeah we didn't ask you why you dropped Ronaldo <laughs> but like you just given us the reasons why he didn't why he didn't play and then there was McTominay in his interview going oh you know I don't bother myself at all with any of the drama that goes on behind the scenes and you're like what he ta- what dra- like what drama uh, well well like uh, it's it's what goes on behind the scenes, you know, doesn't matter to me. And it was kinda like but you haven't been asked about that, but you you're referring to something that you haven't some, there there was well, if, when he was happening.
0: asked how, how deep the problems at the club run, you know. So I think he, he was being led up that path in fairness to McDominie.
2: Yeah, and he well he, he he walked up that he sailed up that path going, Well oh, look, you know, there's, <laughs> a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on, but you know, but there's another, I just there's another, concentrate
3: another bit of sorry, in, in McDominie's interview as well where he said, um he was asked are people trying and he said he wouldn't, he would have to watch it back and look at the body Mm. language." And you know, that again, it's another kind of tacit admission that there is something going on behind the scenes. And like, um, you know, if, if the players are starting to hint at that, I, I think, yeah, to a degree, he was kind of led up the path with that. But I think he is also somebody who, um, says what he means and means what he says and yeah that's
0: a very easy answer the one you talk about there it's very easy yeah. to say well no of course we were all trying that's not the issue but exactly. what he said is well I know I was trying I can't speak for everyone else I have to watch it back to see if the other lads were which is a strange one yeah exactly exactly
3: so I think if that you know that certainly hints at what I think most people believe and most of us know is going on there um, and yeah and and again like the Ronaldo think it, I mean, he left him out of Burnley a few weeks ago when we were there, and he said it's and he said exactly the same thing before it about having to require a lot of running and having to chase a lot of balls. And I know Burnley and City are very different teams, but that sounds like a city game as well. So you know when he when he was left out it wasn't particularly surprised really um, injury notwithstanding. And I think even Guardiola suggested before the match as well like Ronaldo's absence might actually help united to kind of realize Raniuk's philosophy and actually play like a Raniuk team. So, you know, the fact that this thing that we've debated all season really is coming to a, to a head now. Um, you know, I, I think I was, I was I was actually speaking to John from Wilson yesterday and we were saying, you know, like when when Ronaldo came and scored those two against Newcastle it felt like the, the side of the argument that was, you know, he's still a, he's still a great player, he's still going to be a great sign, he's going to score a lot of goals and propel him to the title. You know, you would, those people thought they kind of won the argument already then. But I think over the course of time, we've, we've seen that this really hasn't worked out in the way that anyone really wanted or expected. And, um, yeah, it's difficult to see how it resolves itself without maybe even it being called off early and then going the separate ways. And that might be the best thing for both of them this summer, both, both him and the club.
2: Can I ask you about uh, another forward of the club, uh, Marcus Rashford, who uh, came off the bench yesterday, uh, wasn't, wasn't able to massively impact the, the course of the game, uh, which, which had really gone beyond United's ability to control at that stage. Um, and there's reports today that he is maybe thinking about leaving United now, which is kind of an, an amazing um, uh, decline from where he was a couple of years ago. You know, I think I think back to... Rashford had a, had a pretty heroic status. I mean, I, I don't mean just because of um, all of the kind of goodwill um, that accrued to him after what he did with the, you know, Meals for Schoolchildren and, and all this type of thing. I mean, just just in terms of his performances on the pitch, you know, and as, a, as you know, one of our own, one of these types of players, um, doing really well. And uh, it's just all fizzled out on him. I mean, what, what do you think is has happened here? There was... A physical problem that he had last season uh, you know he was playing injured uh, for for a lot of the seasons throughout the second half of the season we, we know this he played the Euros uh, and he since had those you know he since had surgery and so on and so forth but the form has not recovered.
3: No I think like you, you're absolutely right that there was a period that I, I kind of think of certainly since Solskjaer's appointment of, of this United team in kind of three years if you like and the one that you've got now is Ronaldo's one where everything that's about the club is defined by his signing since then. Before that, you had Bruno, and then, but really up until about January 2020, you had a kind of Rashford era, if you like. Um, and it wasn't a very good era, but he, he was good. He was, he was kind of. The guy that would dig them out of situations.
2: Um, I remember hearing stuff like, you know, oh, Thomas Tuchel at Paris Saint Germain is desperate to sign Marcus Rashford. You know, <laughs> maybe this wasn't true. But, like, he, you know, he's, uh, you know, according to the story I heard, he saw him as, like, wow, this guy is, like, such a, a, a brilliant modern forward. You know, he's got speed, he's got control, he's got precision. You know, he's got everything I'm looking for. Get Rashford. Of course, PSG couldn't make it happen, and maybe United, and I wish they had.
3: Yeah, I, look, I think Neville said it yesterday that you know he started the season with four just four of the central forwards um none of them were available and he still wasn't in the team and that's really you know since that kind of era that I'm talking about I think that's the story of the past two years and really the the injury problems that you mentioned you know I, I do think that's a huge part of it um the fact that he was often playing beyond um beyond the call of duty kind of if you like, um, and, and in situation where he perhaps shouldn't have. That's dating all the way back to that time, really. I remember doing a game uh, against Norwich where he, oh, it was Wolves in the FA Cup where he, he came on as a substitute, kind of needless really, and did his back, and that was what potentially would have put him out for the originally scheduled Euros. There was times like that where he just seemed to be such an important figure for the for, the, for Solskjaer and for the team that they would wheel him out at any opportunity. Um, and again, like you say, the decline now, it's got to the extent where, obviously, you've seen the stuff this morning, going around this morning. I mean, his contract's up in June 2023, so effectively with the one-year addition that they put into all of them, it's 2024, and it's strange to think of him playing for another club, but I, honestly, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if this ended up being his, his last contract at United, whether you know he leaves at the end of it or he leaves before it ends, given, given how his status has kind of declined since then and given the uncertainty around exactly what direction the next manager will go in and, and quite honestly, given his performances, which mitigating factors, though there are, haven't been, haven't been particularly good for really since that, since that little early 2020 period. Tough um, time. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I think we could be looking at perhaps um, <laughs> a, a strange exit, which is strange to think of because it really is aliens, I think, of him playing for anybody else. But we're getting to that point, I think. Yeah, sounds like it. Okay, Mark, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, guys. For fuck's sake, we we need to get back to facts here, because there seems to be a bit of emotion beating it. What you've just said really isn't true.
2: Well no. No what I said. I'm not saying... I don't know what you're saying, to be honest with you. Okay. I mean, I, I, all that Make comes, you point. If you've someone Am on I the interviewing
1: street... Am to- I me? He's a god, he's a god, he's a
2: man, he's a guru.
3: You cheeky bastard. You're one microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan,
2: designed and directed by his red ride. You yeah. did. i I've, I've I've, I've did? Let me finish. Off what happened to Chelsea? For,
0: for, for fuck's sake. sake. Well, this is going splendidly, spend the everyone.
3: Put the cameras up if you want. let a chat. Everybody would think that the appointment of Jose Mourinho would have been a great appointment for Manchester United to win trophies.
2: That they would win trophies under Jose Mourinho. Well, I don't think everybody would have thought that, but I think somebody who didn't know a lot about football would have thought that.
3: What, the Manchester United? Jose Mourinho? Yeah. Did she give us
1: the fuck's sake?
0: Ah, yes, some great live show memories there. We'll be making more memories like that in the next few days. Cannot wait for the Liberty Hall. Uh, Champions League is going ahead this week, is going on this week, I should say. Liverpool, well, they're 2-0 ahead against Inter, so they should be fine. PSG, Real, Real versus PSG, the more delicately poised one, I would say, Ken. PSG taking a 1-0 lead to Real Madrid. What do we see happening there?
2: I expect... PSG to go through I mean they were they they they're winning the tie already they were comfortably the better team in the first game and I think Neymar's fit now I mean he he was he, he was only a substitute in the last game so yeah I think I think PSG should take care of Madrid
0: Thanks Ken thanks for listening today thanks Murph thank you Owen thank you Ken
2: thank you Owen and thank you Kieran
0: thanks so much big week coming up if you are a World Service member we'll either see you or we'll talk to you during the week take care we are here now working on a record called The Gang's All Here. Would you like to give us uh, a preview of this disc? Well, let's give him a sound Come on, a let's bit. give him a preview. We, we'll do a lot better if we had the music here with us. Right, but we're gonna but do it. We'll try now. Hey, hey, the gang's all here Join in the fun Hey, hey, the gang's all here we're gonna swing as one yeah. How you like that? <laughs> I'll see you guys later All right, Sam, yes, sir <laughs> Okay, thank you very much, Cass You're welcome All right
2: Blue, blue, electric blue That's the color of my room Where I will live Blue, blue Nothing to read, nothing to say Blue, blue
3: I will sit right down
2: Waiting for the gift of sound and vision
3: And I will see
2: Waiting for the gift of sound and vision
1: Drifting into my
3: solitude over my head. Don't
2: you wonder sometimes about sound and vision?